Thankful to see everyone this evening and grateful for everyone that got out and braved the rain to be here and to come in this time of fellowship to spend with one another and to be encouraged in our faith and to open up God's Word this evening and to look in the Holy Scriptures and to study what uh, our, our Lord would have us to know about how to live in this world. As Michael mentioned in the beginning, we want to study a subject this evening that's relative to the events of the day. And uh, if you heard this morning, our Supreme Court uh, ruled today that same-gender marriage is now the law of the land. So whenever two men go to get married or two women go to get married, it's just the same as me and my spouse going to get married and you and your spouse going to get married. And, uh, you know, even though it's one of those things that you expect, whenever it actually happens, it's kind of like a punch in the gut. <laughs> in fact, before we left, I had my nephew call me, and he was just all down in the dumps about the Supreme Court ruling today. And so, it's, uh, you know, as, as we studied Sunday concerning the world, the world is in darkness. And even though it's something that, that hurts and something that concerns us, it should never be something that surprises us, because that's the world. That's what the world does. And... Uh, our responsibility as Christians, though, is not to live by the edicts of the Supreme Court, but to live by the edicts of the Supreme Being, that being God. And regardless of what the world does, those of us who are Christians, we're going to take our marching orders and we're going to take our direction from the Holy Scriptures. You know, a lot of times we read in the Bible about the apostles in the early church boldly standing up and saying, we ought to obey God rather than man. And I really can't look back in a time in my life where I've really just had to stand up and say that. But the time may be coming. The time may be coming. And we as Christians need to gird up our minds. As we studied the other night concerning ourselves, having a girded mind, having a mind that's prepared for duty and a mind that's prepared for challenge and the responsibilities that are before us. And what concerns me more than the uh, Supreme Court making their ruling and the world thinking that same-gender marriage and same-gender relationships are okay is seeing many circles within Christendom or can profess Christianity that are espousing this doctrine. Maybe it's because they feel intimidated by the world, but for some reason or the other, they're making the choice that we're going to accept those relationships among us in the name of Jesus Christ. And so my concern is not so much for our nation, but for God's people. That regardless of what goes on around us, that we're faithful to the truth of God's Word. That we're always walking in the light. And we always want to shine that light. And we want to shine that light in a way that can show others that light and be influential in their lives. You know, a lot of times, or a lot of, in many places in the circles of Christianity today, again, professed Christianity, everything is being done in the name of love. We're accepting so many perversions all in the name of love. Well, we studied last evening that whenever Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus wasn't saying, accept the habits, beliefs, and the behaviors of other people that are in error. That's not what he's saying. But yet again, we, we, we live in a very, or we take a very, as we'll, a word that we'll see tonight that's uh, projected upon us, a very myopic view of the Scriptures. But whenever we take a, a, a good view of the Scriptures and use some intellectual honesty and look in the Scriptures and just really try to understand what the Bible says without being guided by any type of agenda or bias, it's going to be very clear to us just exactly what the Bible teaches concerning same-gender marriage. What we want to do this evening is to let a gentleman explain to us a biblical view for same-gender marriage. The man's name is Lee Jefferson. He's a professor at Center College in Danville, Kentucky. 
These are his credentials. He has a Master's of Divinity. He has a Master's and a Ph.D. in Religion. He's taught at Memphis Theological Seminary and he's focused in the areas of Christian tradition and his primary area of interest is the development of Christian tradition and art and imagery of late antiquity. Now, the words that I have highlighted up there are those religious terms. Christian, Christian. He's a teacher in a seminary. And so, what we're talking about here is a professor in a college who is looked at as a noted authority on things Christian who is going to try to explain to us this evening why we as Christians should accept same-gender marriage and same-gender relationships. You know, we can get up here and we can build a straw man and we can go, we all know, this is what they say, this is what they say, this is what... Well, we're going to let they speak to us tonight. Rather than just talking uh, you know, about they, we want to look specifically at what a gentleman is saying and teaching to us as to why we should embrace the idea of same-gender relationships. Well, why do we choose this man? Well, we choose this man because he's writing for the Huffington Post. If you listen to the radio very much, you know what the Huffington Post is. It's a media outlet that espouses and promotes all of the progressive and liberal ideas in our culture today. they got a lot of money. they got a lot of money, and they can hire whoever they want to to give voice to the causes that they deem the most important. And so in doing some research and going to this uh, this outlet and seeing that they used uh, this man right here, that told me he's probably pretty smart. And he's probably, they feel in their mind, a good voice for the cause of same-gender relationships. And so what we're going to do tonight is we're going to let him speak. And this lesson tonight is not about Lee Jefferson. This lesson tonight is about his ideas. And if he's going to publish his ideas, then he should expect his ideas to be scrutinized. I mean, I would if I put anything out, if I put anything out on the internet, like lessons like this, that get, people listen to them and they got something they want to say about them, then I, they're fair game. They're out there for everyone. And so what we're going to do tonight is not try to impugn this man or his character or anything. We just want to look at his ideas because his ideas and his scholarship is representative of the scholarship that is out there that teaches you and me why we should also embrace and celebrate this day where same-gender relationships and same-gender marriage is recognized in our nation. And to the parents in the audience, we will keep this very, <laughs> very above board. And so I don't want you to feel anxious about anything that might come up here on the, on the screen. Well, we're going to do a lot of reading tonight, and I apologize. Again, we're going to break all the rules of PowerPoint. In fact, if we didn't have PowerPoint, this lesson probably wouldn't be possible. But what we want to do is look at the man's words as he speaks to us. And one of the things that I want to notice as he speaks to us is not only his scholarship, but again, his built-in bias towards those of us that don't agree with him. I mean, you know, we're the ones that are bigots. We're the ones that are accused of being biased but built within his discourse is a bias against those of us that don't agree with him. And the bias that he's trying to portray of us is that we're just a bunch of militant, angry, short-sighted people. A bunch of militant, angry, short-sighted people. Several days ago, now this was back in 2011, a historic vote in the state of New York pushed aggressively by Governor Andrew Cuomo legalized the practice of same-gender marriage. This was just in the state of New York. 
Such an action was certainly a momentous decision for marriage equality rights. So whenever they had that vote in New York and they passed it and said in New York we're going to recognize same-gender marriages, it was a day to be celebrated. So they're having a party today. The vote was not one of a kind, but the fact that it occurred in a large and populous state in the country drew more media attention than, say, Vermont. The media focus is a double-edged sword for the issue of same-gender marriage. It exhibits an enlightening progress in our culture concerning same-gender relationships. So on the one hand, it was a great thing because it showed an enlightenment in our culture and the progress that we're making on this very vital issue. But there was a downside to it. The downside is it also gives voice to the cacophonous opposition, not only directed towards same-gender unions, but towards same-gender orientation. Cacophonous. I had to practice that word a lot before I said it. And it literally means harsh-sounding. So what he's saying is, on the one hand, we're making a lot of progress. It shows our cultural enlightenment on this. But on the other hand, what we've done is we've shaken some folks up. There's some people that are unhappy. And what we've done is we've shaken up the cacophonous opposition. So there again is the built-in bias. We're just a bunch of harsh-sounding opponents of this. That's not only directed towards same-gender unions, but towards same-gender orientation itself. Such opposition quite often utilizes religion as a bruising hammer to drive home their message, and often the Bible is invoked to justify any anti-same-gender argument. Do you see the characterization of his opponents? How that he's trying to portray us as a militant group of people. And I will have to admit, there are some people out there that oppose uh, this issue that are militant in their approach. But that doesn't characterize you, and it doesn't characterize me. But notice the the language that's used. They quite often utilize religion as a bruising hammer to drive home their message. Groups opposed to same-gender marriage cite biblical passages to endorse their rejection of any marriage amendment while condemning same-gender practice in general on the basis that the Bible says it is wrong. Now that the celebration of the New York vote has receded past the front page of most papers and news sites, we have an opportunity to examine the biblical argument against same-gender marriage and against same-gender orientation in context. And so what he's saying now is, now that all of the hoopla is passed, we can now sit down and we can examine the Scriptures, the supposed Scriptures in his mind, that deal with this issue and really look at the truth of them and understand them in context. Biblical arguments against same-gender marriage are not proffered from texts that deal with marriage, but from texts that purportedly deal with same-gender orientation. So, the texts that he cites here, he says, they're not even texts that deal with marriage to begin with. But they're, de- they're texts that purportedly deal with same-gender orientation. 
Same-gender marriage is rejected as unchristian and immoral on the basis of a myopic reading of a very few biblical texts. The word myopic there means lack of foresight or discernment, a narrow view of something. In other words, you and I, when we look at the Bible, we take a very short-sighted, we take a very narrow view of the Scriptures. And because of that, we're so narrow in our view, we're so myopic in the way that we approach the Scriptures, we can't get the full understanding of what the Bible says about same-gender marriage. And therefore, we're ignorant and we reject it as unchristian and immoral. And the text in question are scant indeed. The most referenced texts are Genesis 19, the Holiness Code of Leviticus 17 to 26, and in the New Testament, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians chapter 6 verse 9, and his letter to the Romans chapter 1 verses 26 and 27. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at these scant few verses. And we're going to take a view of them, and we're going to take a look at them, and we're going to try to look at them in their larger context within the Scriptures to try to see if we can discern whether same-gender relationships and same-gender marriage is something that we should accept or not. If anything, this exercise, and I notice this because it begins to get to the heart of the matter, If anything, this exercise questions whether we should develop stances based upon what the Bible says. So through this process, what we also need to be asking ourselves is this. Do we really need to be taking moral and social stances on the basis of what the Bible says? Now this is Christian. If you were to go into this college and say, you know, I'm a Christian and I'm struggling to understand the truth about same-gender marriage, you know what they'd do? They'd say, we, got it. we know exactly who to send you to. And you'd go and you'd march into his office and you would sit down with a man with Christian things all over his wall. And that Christian man is raising the question here, should we even develop stances based upon what the Bible says? Simply put, the Bible is a complicated collection of documents that never meant, was never meant to speak to our contemporary situation. Think about that. The Bible is a complicated collection of documents that was never meant to speak to our contemporary situation. You cannot accept the Bible as the infallible and authoritative Word of God and think that same-gender marriage is right. Whenever people tell us that same-gender marriage is something that is right... It's not just because they misunderstand a few scriptures within the Bible. It's because they miss the Bible entirely. Entirely. That it's looked at as a document that basically is outdated. It's a document that was never meant to speak to our contemporary situation. Then you tell me why in the world we're having this discussion. Why are we even bothering to have this discussion? If this book doesn't speak to our contemporary situation today, we might as well be sitting around reading a Marvel comic book and trying to come up with live philosophical answers from it. But a person that doesn't believe that the Bible is relevant to us today 
is speaking from a position to where they're going to end up at any conclusion that they want to end up to, end up with. And that's why in our discussions with people, whenever we open up the Bible and start having discussions with people concerning this, one of the first things that we need to establish between us and them is not what do these scriptures mean, but what is the relevancy of this book to our life. And whenever people want to go off into sin and in depravity, The one thing that would restrain their behavior, they just look at it and simply say it's outdated and move on from there. But notice the next statement. But groups often speak through the lenses of of the Bible and lob textual grenades on issues like same-gender marriage. So we're going to lob some textual grenades tonight. We're going to pull a pen and we're going to throw Romans chapter 1, 26 and 27 at them. You see the characterization? That's not me. And that's not you. But in order to advance their agenda, that's how those that oppose them have to be characterized. They're not honest. And there I go. I told you I didn't want to impugn his character. But, I mean, we've got to be honest. I mean, this is not right. Well, let's look. The first text that he gives to us is Genesis 19. And here's his explanation of Genesis 19. Now, I want you to listen to these explanations because you're going to sit there and we're going to read them. And then after we read them, you're going to sit there with a stunned look on your face. And you're going to think, did I really hear what I thought he said? So, follow closely. The biblical texts that are most often cited in the same gender debate deserve some explanation in order to reduce their citation for hurtful purposes. For example, the text of Genesis 19 centers upon the story of Lot's visitation in the city of Sodom by two angels. The men of Sodom tell Lot to hand over the male visitors so that they may know them, giving rise to the term sodomy. Lot bargains with the visitors quite horribly to a contemporary reader's eyes by offering the men his virgin daughters instead. However, any reader of ancient literature, of which the Hebrew Bible is a component, would realize the familiar motif concerning hospitality. For example, the Greek gods Zeus and Hermes would frequently disguise themselves as humans in order to ferret who among their supplicants were truly hospitable people. And so the story is not one denigrating same-gender practice. Instead, it upholds the incredible and ludicrous hospitality of Lot as a virtue. Now some of you are looking with furrowed brows. (laughs) In other words, when you and I read Genesis 19, rather than walking away from it and saying, man, that Sodom and Gomorrah was an evil place. We're supposed to be walking away thinking, boy, that Lot was one hospitable dude. And we look at that and we think, that that may be the first time some of you have heard, but that's pretty common. I was watching Fox News one night in a debate going on about this. And, you know, one of the commentators was on there. He was explaining exactly what Genesis 19 meant. And he explained it, that Genesis 19 is not about homosexuality, it's about hospitality. It's about hospitality. Well, let's not take a myopic view of it. Let's look at this in its context. 
Genesis 13 and 13, the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. That's the first mention that we have of Sodom in the Bible. And what's the first thing we find out about Sodom? They were wicked sinners. Genesis 18 and 20, the Lord said, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they've done all together according to the cry of it which has come up unto me, and if not, I will know. And so then that brings us to Genesis 19. So he's sending those two men into Sodom and Gomorrah, and then they go in, and then Lot takes them in. So there were two angels that came to Sodom at even, and Lot sat at the gate, and Lot seeing them rose up to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, Behold now, my Lord turns in, I pray you, into your servant's house, and tarry all night, and wash your feet, and ye shall rise up early and go on your ways. And they said, Nay, but we will abide in the street all night. And he pressed upon them greatly, and they turned in unto him, and entered into his house, and he made them a feast, and did bake them unleavened bread, and they did eat. But before they lay down, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, compassed the house around, both old and young, all the people from every quarter. And they called out unto Lot and said unto him, Where are the men which came into thee this night? Bring them out to us that we may know them. And that know is not have a conversation with them. And Lot went out at the door unto them and shut the door after him and said, I pray you, brethren, do not so wickedly. So we're told that the men of Sodom, that they were their sin, they were sinners. There was a cry of sin that was going up to God from the men of Sodom. And so God sends two angels into Sodom to see and to search out to see if the behavior was consistent with the cry. The two men go into Lot's house and the men are beating on the doors. Send them out so that we may sexually abuse them. And then Lot pleads with them, don't do so wickedly. In Genesis 19 and 12, the men said unto Lot, Hast thou any there any besides son-in-law, thy, da- thy sons, thy daughters, and whatsoever thou hast in the city, bring them out of this place, for we will destroy this place, because the cry of them is waxen great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord hath sent us to destroy it. And so the angels tell Lot, If you've got any other family in here, we need to get them out. Because the cry of them is waxen great before the face of the Lord. In other words, the behavior was consistent with the cry. God's going to destroy this place. And so the Bible tells us that the Lord rained upon Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And He overthrew all those cities and all the plains and all the inhabitants of the cities. And that which grew upon the ground. Thus Lot was a very hospitable man. When we read Genesis 19, what we're not, what we're seeing is not a lesson in hospitality, but we're seeing a lesson in God's vengeance upon sin. And not just any sin, a particular type of sin, the sin of sodomy. Men searching and burning in their lust after other men. But let's take a bigger look at this. We do not want to be myopic. In Ezekiel 16 and 49, Behold, this is the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. So here the prophet is talking about Sodom and says, This was her iniquity. 
pride, fullness of bread, an abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and mighty. You know, I've read or was listening to a commentator on this and was reading this passage and got to that right there. See, those people were inhospitable. They didn't strengthen the hands of the poor and needy, but Lot did. So that's why that's what the story of Sodom and Gomorrah centers around. But all you got to do is keep reading. They were haughty and they committed abomination before me. Therefore I took them away as I saw good. Sodom and Gomorrah weren't destroyed because they were inhospitable and Lot was hospitable. Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed because of their lust that they had for the same gender. And how that they burned in their lust one for another. And how that that was an abomination to God. Now notice in this, her first sin that's mentioned is pride. Pride. What's one of the things that we hear associated with the movement today? Gay pride. And that's what this is all about. Pride. We're lifted up to where we don't want to retain God in our knowledge. We've set ourselves on the throne. And if I want to burn in my lust towards someone who's of the same gender, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to be in your face about it. You know, I've seen a lot of parades on TV. I've seen a Thanksgiving Day parade. I've seen a Christmas parade. And, you know, Macy's. All those. You know, something I've never seen on TV is a gay pride parade. And you know why you won't see one on TV? They can't show it. They can't show it. Now, on the news, you'll see a few people with their rainbow T-shirts carrying a flag, and they look just like you and me, and they look just, you know, just... Common folks, they've just got their calls. They don't want to stir up any trouble. But you know what? They don't show you what's behind all that. I went to a men's conference one time and this issue was being discussed. And they showed us a video of what a gay pride parade looks like. It looked like hell boiling over. Hell boiling over. You think of any way that you can pervert yourself and pervert your sexuality or somebody else's sexuality and that's what was marching down the street. That's what was marching down the street. You see, we're, we're shown or we're, we're led to believe that these are people just like you and me. They're just humble people that want the same American happiness that you have. But what we have to understand that this entire movement, this entire behavior is rooted in pride. An in-your-face pride. Is Genesis 19 about the hospitality of Lot? Absolutely not. Genesis 19 is about the destruction of cities because of their wickedness, which was capped off by their abominations before the Lord in seeking after people of the same gender. And I don't think we took a very myopic view of it. Do you? I think we looked at it in context. We looked at all of the other references. And we could continue to look at references. 2 Peter 2 verse 16. The cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. So in the New Testament, when they talk about Sodom and Gomorrah, what's the lesson that we're supposed to learn? That we're supposed to be hospitable? 
The turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes condemned them in an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly. That's what Genesis 19 is about. It's showing us an example of what's going to happen if we choose to live ungodly. And delivered just Lot vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Jude, verse 7, Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So is Genesis 19 about being inhospitable? but rather it's an example of those who will give themselves over to fornication and go after strange flesh. You know, a lot of times people will say, well, the word homosexual is not even in the Bible, and it's not. But there are many other terms in the Bible that have reference to it as this term right here, going after strange flesh. And that's what they did. Leviticus 17 through 26, the holiness codes. Here's our explanation. Similarly, the holiness codes of Leviticus thread down from an all-encompassing mandate to behave distinctly from their foreign and depraved neighbors. Leviticus 20.13 that prescribes the death penalty for same-gender relations is quite related to the codes that condemn bestiality, invoke dietary restrictions, and order the wearing of uh, certain fibers. And so again, that's an argument that's often made is they want to try to equate homosexuality with wearing certain fibers. But whenever we look at the context, or first of all, as he finishes out his explanation, the code makes the Israelites unique from their neighbors and they reflect a particular time and place in Israelite history. Any contemporary critique must note this reality before invoking the codes as ammunition against same-gender practice. So in other words, what we read in Leviticus chapter 20 concerning same-gender relationships, that was something that was just for those days. You know, because we don't have the same dietary restrictions, we don't have the same restrictions on wearing certain fibers and certain materials, so then the uh, injunction against same-gender relationships is something that must have been contemporary to that day and not to our day. And again, that's an argument that's used a lot of times whenever we find something in the Bible that we don't like. We just say, well, that was for that day. That was just for that day. But let's look at the Scriptures. Leviticus 18 and 3, After the going or the doings of the land of Egypt wherein ye dwelt, shall ye not do. After the doings of the land of Canaan, whether I bring you, you shall not do, neither shall you walk in their ordinances. And so that was one of the reasons for the Levitical codes, that God did not want His people to be like all of the other heathens that were around them. Those that were in Egypt and those that were in Canaan. He was looking for and seeking after a distinct group of people. And He didn't want His people having same gender relationships because those in Egypt and those people in Canaan were doing that depraved practice. Leviticus 18 and 22, So he tells them, Thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind. It is an abomination. So our question is, was it just an abomination then because Egypt and Canaan were doing it? 
Or it was it an abomination because it was abominable in the sight of God. The same God that we serve today that was in existence then. Leviticus 20.13, If a man also lie with mankind as he lieth with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination, they shall surely be put to death, their blood shall be upon them. In Luke, or Leviticus 20 and 23, And ye shall not walk in the manners of the nations which I cast out before you, for they committed all these things, and therefore I abhorred them. So it seems in God's discussion, whenever He's putting this injunction in place, He's always referring to those nations that were round about them. Well, the question that we want to ask is, why did God want His people to be different from the neighbors that were around them? He didn't want them to participate in same-gender relationships because all of the nations around them did it. But why did God not want His people to do that? Was it for the sake of just being different from all of the other nations? Or was it because those nations were depraved, those nations were abominable, and God did not want His people to be that way? Well, Dr. Jefferson answers it for us. He wants them to behave distinctly from their foreign and their depraved neighbors. So their neighbors were depraved. And so God did not want them acting the same way and being depraved also. And so by his own admission, he's showing to us here that, you know, whether he realizes it or not, that this is a depraved behavior. Well, was that something just for that day? Let's go to the New Testament. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. We won't take the time to read all of that, but we go to verse 23. Change the glory of the corruptible God into an image made like to a corruptible man, to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affections, implacable, unmerciful, who, knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in doing them. In doing them. And so Paul gives us a catalog of sins in Romans chapter 1 that God is against in that day and couched right in amongst all of those sins that God was against that day. What do we find? Men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their own lust one toward another. Men with men working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. So what we've done is we've looked at Genesis 19 before the law. Did God condone same gender relationships then? No. We've looked at the law in Leviticus. Did God condone same gender relationships then? No. We've looked in Romans, in the Christian dispensation. Did God condone same-gender relationships then? No. Every dispensation that we have record of in the Bible tells us that God does not condone same-gender relationships. So what's my conclusion today? What's my conclusion today? 
Since I can read in the Bible that in every dispensation God has taken a harsh disposition against that sin, am I to think today that it's anything different? Or am I to conclude God's against same-gender relationships? So it's not something that was just to that period of time. But rather, it's something that shows a consistent disposition of God throughout all ages. Romans 1, 26-27. Read this real carefully with me. In his address to the Romans, Paul described the root sin of the Gentiles as idolatry. And the consequences of idolatry are vices beginning with women and men exchanging natural, physical relations for unnatural. While Paul is describing this behavior as the result of wayward passions, the chief sin is idolatry and separation from the one true God. So as we read through all those sins that we read in Romans chapter 1, we don't want to lose sight. Yeah, that's all bad, but the really bad one was that they were idolatrous and they were separated from God. And so therefore he goes on to conclude, while the Romans text offers the longest discussion of same gender behavior in the New Testament, it is unclear whether it truly is a condemnation of a specific practice. Some of you are chuckling because you see that. You're just sitting there, you know, you can't make this stuff up. So, that text that talks more about same-gender relationships than any other sin in that list of sin is couched within a text that begins this way. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That text concludes by saying, Who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death? And I'm supposed to conclude, and you're supposed to conclude, that everything in between those two verses we're not real sure how God feels about. This is the scholarship. This is the scholarship, the biblical scholarship behind the advancement by other Christians that you and I need to accept same-gender relationships. Well, let's define ungodliness just so that we're sure. Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. In 1 Timothy 1 verse 9, the Bible tells us that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless, disobedient, and the ungodly. And then he lists for us here some ungodly people. And listed among those are those that defile themselves with mankind. So, God's wrath is against ungodliness. Timothy tells us that the law is for the ungodly. And then he tells us who the ungodly are. And part of that description of the ungodly are those that defile themselves with mankind. That statement, defile themselves with mankind, comes from this Greek word, which literally means to commit the sin of Sodom. To commit the sin of Sodom. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. 
1 Corinthians 9 and verse 6, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? And then Paul tells us what the unrighteous look like. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, abusers of those themselves with mankind. Same thing. What Paul is doing is tying all of this back to Genesis 19. And God's wrath is against that. And so we see that whenever we read this, there's no doubt God's disposition against it. Yes, the chief sin was idolatry. Yes, the chief sin was, you know, they didn't want to retain God in their knowledge. Well, something happens whenever people become idolatrous and they don't retain God in their knowledge. They become ungodly and unrighteous. And part of that ungodliness and that unrighteousness is the sin of Sodom. And my question would be, okay, if we're not sure about this, how can we be sure about any of that? If I'm not sure that God is against same-gender relationships, how can I be sure that God is against any of these things? Maybe disobedient to parents. (laughs) Well, parents are different nowadays than they were back then, so that doesn't apply to us. While the Romans text offers the longest discussion of same-gender behavior in the New Testament, our scholar tells us it's unclear whether it is truly a condemnation of a specific practice. Folks, that's darkness. That's darkness. 1 Corinthians 6 and 9. The Pauline letters that are raised in the same gender debate were part of Paul's understanding of sexual immorality in the first century. So there we go again. We're trying to make all of these laws and all of these teachings time-specific. Time-specific. In his letter to the Corinthians, Paul includes a laundry list of vices, male prostitutes and sodomites. These terms are injected along with many other vices, fornicators, idolaters, adulterers. Now again, listen and try to grasp this. And Paul is addressing the issue of a church member with his stepmother. In other words, Paul is addressing all deviant sexual and immoral behavior, not just that of the same gender variety. Yeah, right, Jeremy. So, what, what's the point? <laughs> and I guess the point is, is that since, since Paul included other sins in there, that the sin that involves same-gender relationships somehow is minimized and is okay. So in other words, since Paul didn't just say that one specific sin, that somehow we're to infer from that that God's okay with that. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? According to our scholar, Paul put too many words in this verse for us to really understand that God was against that. And again... You know, at the risk of sounding humorous or sarcastic. I mean, you just look at this and you just shake your head. Paul's addressing all deviant sexual and immoral behavior. That's what our author says. The same gender variety is addressed, so based on logic, then deviant sexual and immoral behavior includes the same gender variety. 
I mean, that's just logic. That you don't have to have a master's and a doctor degree to understand. And so what we've looked at are the four texts that deal with this issue. The four texts. Now, there's other texts in the Bible that get mentioned some also, but these are the four major ones. And our scholar employed by the Huffington Post is supposed to have shown to all of us where we have been wrong in our understanding of those verses. Now, we haven't agreed with anything that's been said up here tonight, have we? But we're about to hear a statement that we're all going to agree with. The above discussions will likely never satisfy any opponent of gay rights or of the same gender marriage to any degree. (laughs) I agree with that. That doesn't convince me. In fact, that convicts me. That convicts me to have confidence in the truth and in my understanding of the truth. It says, when teaching biblical... Now notice, we're getting back to our disposition towards the Bible. When teaching biblical material to undergraduates, I'm always anxious when approaching the issue of same-gender orientation in the Bible, especially teaching in the Bible Belt. Oh, us difficult people in the Bible Belt. But many of them question the validity of basing every aspect of their lives entirely on what the Bible says. The Bible says a lot of things, but perhaps we should treat the Bible less like an authoritative contract with God and understand it more as a human-authored, divinely-inspired document that arouses a life of faith. So now we're going to get back to how we view the Bible. You know, we really need to question the wisdom. We really need to question the wisdom in basing every aspect of our life on this book. But rather what we should do is look at this book rather than an authoritative contract with God, but we should look at it as a human-authored, divinely inspired document that arouses a life of faith. Now my question is, what in the world is that? What is that? That's one of those academic and scholarly terms that sounds so intelligent but says absolutely nothing says absolutely nothing. In other words, this book is just a bag of fluff. It's just a bag of fluff. And I can go around telling everybody that I believe that it's human-authored and divinely inspired document that arouses a life of faith to show that I have some type of regard and some type of piety for it when in fact all it is to me is a bag of fluff that really has no bearing in my life whatsoever. It's just window dressing. It's just window dressing. So does the Bible have anything to say about gay marriage? Now, remember the verses that we looked at tonight are the verses that he said dealt with same gender relationships. Now in the conclusion of his discussion, does the Bible have anything to say about gay marriage? The Bible is not specific, literate, or even concerned with what we call same gender orientation or same gender marriage. Ask those people in Sodom. Ask those people in Sodom if God's concerned with that. Ask those people that the Apostle Paul ran into and talked to and taught the truth to whether God was concerned with that. 
The state of New York recently had quite a lot to say about gay marriage. So what we should do is instead of listening to the Bible, we should listen to the state of New York. Have you been to New York lately? I think I'm going to put my faith there. Those that would insert the Bible into this debate would do well to reflect upon the text itself. Now, here is, again, the scholarly language that seems to say a lot but says absolutely nothing at all. If we only quit focusing on what the Bible didactically says and converse with the text in its broader cultural context, then one can realize the multivalent value of such a book that a narrow reading cannot service. Oh, that sounds so intelligent. Now the question is, what did it mean? What did it mean? Well, he's saying what we should do, instead of just opening up the Bible and reading the Bible and finding out what the Bible says and go and do it, what we should do is converse with the text. Oh, my Bible. Oh, my Bible. I know you were written long ago, but Bible, we live in the 21st century today. Oh, my Bible. And I know in here that people have been destroyed because of same-gender relationships. I know that God did not want the children of Israel involved in same-gender relationships in all my Bible. I know that the Apostle Paul said that those that involve themselves in same-gender relationships, they've forgotten God, they don't want to retain God in their knowledge, and the wrath of God is going to be poured out on them. But all my Bible, it's the 21st century. We're different. We're more enlightened We're more progressive. So, oh, my Bible, you are a historical document that is humanly author and and, and godly inspired, and you arouse a life of faith in me. But, oh, my Bible, I like Joe, and that's where I'm going to go. Now, I'm using the absurd to demonstrate the absurd. You know and I know that that's ridiculous. And I don't want to offend you in any way by, by dramatizing that. But that's what we're seeing here. That's what we're seeing. In closing, Ken Chitwood. This is a, a gentleman that was an intern with Link Houston. It's a network. Now notice from their website. A network of local churches that have joined together in a common mission to impact the city of Houston with the love of Christ. So this is a network of churches and we're going to go out into Houston and we're going to impact the community with the love of Christ. He's taught theology. He's taught world religions. He's advanced in biblical studies. I believe it is because of the sociological shift and contemporary Bible scholarship like Jefferson's that leads to defeat for conservatives on the issue of same-gender marriage. So this scholarship that we've looked at tonight, it's defeated us. We can't argue against it. We conservatives, all we can do is just lower our heads and walk around like a bunch of whoop pups. And then he goes on to say, the Bible cannot speak into the contemporary situation. 
It's a historical document to be understood within its own context and not interpreted for life today. The contemporary situation acts back and interprets the Bible on its own terms, not the other way around. Such a hermeneutic is ever more popular this day and age, and I guess so. So rather than me looking at the Bible and trying to understand the Bible and applying the Bible to my day, what he's saying is, I need to just put the Bible down, come over here my day, look at how my day is and how I live in my day, and interpret the Bible that way. And that's what we've seen tonight. That's why someone can read Romans chapter 1 and walk away scratching their head. I wonder if God's against same-gender relationships. That's why somebody can read Genesis 19 and walk away thinking, you know, that Lot was a really hospitable person. Because they're trying to frame those stories so that the Bible can fit into their contemporary day and they can live however they want to live. You and I need to gird our minds with the truth. You and I do not need to be afraid. We do not need to be afraid. We do not need to be intimidated. What we need to do is pick up our Bibles and study these verses and have answers, ready answers, to be able to expose the error. And you know, you're not probably going to convert that really hardcore, militant, same-gender marriage person. But you know what? Titus chapter 1, like we studied the other day, their mouths have to be stopped. Their mouths have to be stopped. These young people. Now, I may not convert them, but in the process of not converting them, what I am doing is I'm winning these souls over here. And we want to win these souls over here. And so, whenever we look at the uh, challenge that's before us, let's gird up our minds. As the Apostle Paul said, quit you like men. Get yourself ready. Study your Bibles. And understand, understand that what we've looked at tonight, this is supposed to be the cream of the crop in biblical understanding concerning same-gender relationships. It's foolishness. It's foolishness. And you can pick up your Bible, and I can pick up my Bible, and we can explain it just as well as anyone that has advanced degrees. And I've got it. I've, I've got advanced degrees, but I don't put my faith in those. I put my faith in the fact that God has made this book to be understood by me, by you, by anyone else. And education is good, but education is not good whenever it becomes your God. And you usurp the authority of God in your own life by being able to tell God, well, now, God, I know that's what you meant then, but see, I'm smarter nowadays, so this is what it means. So I hope our study this evening has been interesting to you, and I appreciate your patience, and I hope that it will enlighten us to the truth. Yeah, the Supreme Court can do what the Supreme Court wants to do. The world can do what the world's going to do. But what we have to do is close ranks as Christians and make sure that this stuff doesn't infiltrate our ranks. And we do that by preparing ourselves, by teaching on this and by talking about it. We've got to teach on it and we've got to talk about it. Because if we're not teaching it here, guess where they're getting taught? They're getting taught this at school. They're getting taught this when they turn on the cartoons on Saturday morning. When they're sitting there watching commercials, our children are being taught this. On the ABC Family Channel, they're being taught this. On the Disney Channel, they're being taught this.
So we have to understand the challenge that's before us and meet this head on and meet it with a godly zeal. If you're here this evening and you're not a Christian and you desire to be one through obedience to the gospel, we'd be glad to help you. Or if you are a Christian and you have a spiritual matter to bring to the attention of the congregation, we'd ask you to come as we stand and sing.